0: We recorded an episode last week for the Talk podcast called Evergrande is Bankrupt. That was the title. We recorded it on September 12th. We uploaded it on September 13th. I didn't expect... It wasn't really clickbait because they were functionally insolvent, but I didn't expect it to become such a self-fulfilling prophecy in such a rapid, rapid time frame. Their situation financially has completely collapsed within the past seven days since I recorded that initial podcast. Although I did have another one recorded for it uh, in late July. And that was kind of ahead on the curve, so I'm happy we were able to talk about it back then. But things have gotten much worse. Today, local time in China, uh, and uh, tomorrow in Eastern Coast time where I'm recording this podcast, they won't be able to pay interest on some of their debt. So, I mean, you could argue that means to fall or whatever they want to do with it, but they can't pay interest on the debt due today, local time. Uh, for them, as the time of recording this, it'll be a day after by the time this gets uploaded. Um, they halted bond trading on one of their, on some of their bond sets on the 16th, and UBS is saying that you know uh, the co- like a credit event is unavoidable for the company at this point. Other analysts are scrambling to find what the hell is going on with it because you know no one knows exactly what's going to happen except that things are just completely, completely falling apart right now, and it's just not a good situation at all. You know, Chin is asking in chat, Mr. Strat, what the heck is going on in China, Monka? Dude, honestly, from an outsider's view, Contagion is, like, in effect, to some level. Obviously not to the point where everything's collapsed, right? Or, Or crazy, right? But it's really, really not good for Evergrande themselves, obviously. And also, just the fact that you're actually seeing Contagion spread. And we'll be getting into that later in the podcast as well, but... The situation has really escalated a lot in the last week in terms of the reality of, oh crap! This is something that's really real uh, and happening right now that we have to keep like an immediate eye on to see what happens. You know, if I pull Evergrande's stock and go to like the past week performance and basically just draw this out, since we first talked about Evergrande on July twenty sixth, the stock has dropped sixty percent. At its lowest point, it was down sixty six percent. A lot of that's in the past week. The stock went from 360 to, th- to 262 in a week. So the stock at price is continuing to capitulate. Bonds are continuing to capitulate, and this is spreading throughout the sector and it, more broadly. Some financials are starting to get impacted. Commodities, to some extent, are being impacted, and it's important to watch honestly. And it's definitely going beyond just financial measures, which is probably one of the most important things to know. This isn't just you know financial measures at play here. There's a lot of mental and emotional things going on here too. I can't confirm this because it's very new and the only things from sh- the Stratus Times that were reporting on this were from mainly sourced by WeChat. But on WeChat, the people were claiming that they were holding certain Evergrande employees hostage that were investors of the company. They were holding these people hostage. you know. And, and obviously, like I said, I can't confirm it. But either way, that goes to show the severity, not just pure financial, but the impact it can have psychologically, mentally, on individuals that have money on the line right and and, you know i'm not going to put too much focus on that as we talk through the rest of things today but Evergrande is basically bankrupt as we know they can't pay their debt that's due today tomorrow or yesterday depending on when you're listening to this and contagion seems to be spreading out we'll be going through a few sources that really discuss some broader detail later in the episode um but it's not looking good Everything said in the Theta Talk podcast is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast is financial advice, and please talk with a professional investment advisor and do your own research before making any investment decisions. Welcome to Theta Talk. I'm your host, Strat Becker. This is the show where you get premium for your time, Uh, and we talked last week, obviously, about Evergrande and their functional insolvency at that point. This week's going to be much more focused on the contagion, how things might be trickling out. And, and really spreading through you know not just singular companies or direct companies surrounding it, potentially broader markets, uh, not just in China, but the global economy. There is some really interesting things going on with that uh, to the point where Michael Purry was even highlighting some threads on Twitter a couple nights ago. You know how he is. He like puts a couple tweets out and then he deletes them when he tweets something else out, but he did put some focus on this stuff a couple nights ago. So I, I do want to make sure that we keep that On on tap, And we'll be talking about that later. But first, I just want to say really quick um, from personal experience in the past week that I'm going to put a firm on blast. I'm not going to name call them just because uh, I might still be hired by them. But punctuality is important, right? I think everyone that's listening to this on the podcast or, or watching live would agree that punctuality is important. And I do my best to be on time for anything professional. So, for example, if I'm, you know, over the summer with my boss, I'd be on time to everything right? If it's an interview for a job or an internship or something, I'm on time or early even. What is really not okay is when that level of respect is not reciprocated by firms to the potential app, to their applicants who are essentially their potential employees. I had two interviews this week with the same company. I had a round one and a round two. The round one The person was 10 minutes late to call me. They're both phone interviews, right? So it's not like an in-person thing. They just got to ring you up. They don't have to be, you you know, it doesn't even matter what they're wearing or anything, right? Round one is 10 minutes late to call me. I'm like extra stressed because of it. Because like, you know, I have to wait there like 10 minutes like in anticipation. Like, oh God, oh God, oh God. Like, right? But, you know, things happen every once in a while. It's like, okay. The round two, which is Friday morning. The person was over 20 minutes late to call me, 20 plus minutes, to the point where I had to send an email to the organizer of the the interview to tell them this person didn't show up and and find out what was going on. And they knew I had time constraints that morning, too, because I had a class at 11. This was supposed to be a 10 a.m. interview. I had class at 11, so I had to leave here at like 1045 to get to where I have to go. Person doesn't call me until 1025-ish almost, Right. And then that means that they don't have enough time to properly conduct a full interview to really get to know who I am. And that hurts my own prospects. But it also shows just, I guess, a lack of respect for applicants in a way that really shouldn't be going on. You know, I know a family member that used to hire people and she would never hire anyone if they were late for an interview. You know, I I just didn't really like the vibes from that. And honestly, you know, it can be very anxiety-inducing to people. You don't want to, like, put people through extra stuff for that. I mean... Even Gatsby says suggesting Goldman Sachs waits till evening for the recruiting session. Well, if they schedule it like that, then it's okay. Or if they email you or, t- or someone tells you they're running late, it's fine. But these are both times, especially the Friday when it was like 25 minutes almost. No message to me whatsoever saying, hey, something's going on. This is going to be a few minutes late, right? If they do that, if they have the courtesy to do that, it's okay. But it's like a ghost until you actually get the message, right? Someone called you a day early for an interview, so i confused on what day the interview was. I mean, at least they, like, you know, could realize, oh, wait, this is the wrong day, and call you back on the right day or something, though, right? I think it's a different level of almost, like, disrespect when you're there ready for the time, and then they're late multiple times in a week and don't have the common courtesy to extend it, like, over to say, hey, you know... We're running late. Is this okay? Do we need to reschedule or anything like that? Like, very bad vibes for me. Swolger saying, no, the person that was a day early thought that was the day of, oh, God. No, no, these are all East Coast people too, Swolger Boy. It isn't like the time zone thing. Because these are all East Coast people for this stuff, you know? It, it, you know, maybe for the one, I could let it get past, but it's, it, it, on, it isn't just like, oh, this happened once. It's twice in the same week, you know? And Gatsby's seen again, not even scheduled. Uh, it's for testing the future play, like six hours. Later. I think there's some level of like where you can do psychological or behavioral tests without like purposely doing things to people like that, you know? I do remember hearing that story though, because like the people would leave over time, over the six hours things, and like the one person that stayed would get the job or something like that. But like for internships, at least, and stuff like that, I don't really. Again, especially when it's a phone call, like it's not like going somewhere in person. You have to wait there the whole time. They're literally calling you on the phone, they're not. But that was just my take on respect for applicants as someone that in college going through this whole process. You know, we're going to be basically doing grunt work and, and working as hard as we can to potentially land full time jobs. You know, the least we could have is some level of, you know, return common courtesy, right? I think that's just my take on it. Uh, and quickly, another funny note about. It college in the past week really was uh, we're near Boston and I think it was homecoming or something this weekend. I forget really because I didn't go to the football game because I was too much in pain over the Giants loss on Thursday night. But they had these like tour buses like you know the tour buses that go to, into the town like our show off like Boston and like to tourists and stuff. They were streaming into our schools. Outside my window was like, uh, like I could see one of the, like, the campus roads right? And I was really confused like whole day. Because I had no idea if there was like, oh, they're here to take the parents to like Boston for tours or if they were taking people from Boston for tours to the campus because it was like a marketing expense for the school or something. I have no idea. Either way, you know, if it was a way to get the like the first years out into Boston and touch some grass for a second, respect, you know? What I really wanted to talk about outside of just, you know, more menial topics was some of the impacts we're seeing here in the U.S. now Uh, that have really been developing over the last week. Obviously, I'll pull this up uh, on video, Slip Over Spy. The market's been pretty weak in the past two weeks. Usually there's been a trend since, I think February at least at this point, that the market would be very weak on OpEx week and then kind of bounce back after Wednesday OpEx and keep going. But that hasn't really been the case this way, Friday was particularly weak out of this going to new lows that we haven't seen since uh, late August at the end of the day, it's literally a less than 3% pullback from the all-time highs but I think some of the dynamics of it are particularly notable, you can see my show notes right here, you know it, it, this is baby numbers, right, if you're talking in drawdowns from all-time highs, right we haven't had a real pullback since all, 11 months ago almost, you know the last real pullback we had was, you know, October to, to early November last year. It's been very, like, minimal in terms of, oh, you know, this is, like, a serious dip what, right? You had some volatility, you know, in, in the GameStop mania in late January. You had some stuff with the yields in late February, early March. But for the most part, the S&P has had a spectacular year. It's still up 18% this year, right? Still fine. I think one of the interesting dynamics you see play out with it is that many new traders or investors that are younger or whatever that have gotten in since this point have no experience with a serious pullback, even though they're very common, right? Like, hell, you look at 2019, which is a great, gr- insanely good year for the market. You get one, two, three pretty substantial pullback events within the year obviously this chop around rates was, was pretty substantial you had trade stuff here in may all this stuff I'm, I'm not saying anything about oh the market's going to crash to the uh, soldier boy to, to respond to that but so many people aren't used to oh the market can actually go down 10 percent and like take six months to a year to, or like or a couple months to get back right that's normal that's healthy right but no one's really used to that anymore right now at least, or especially the new people. If you Obviously people with experience will, will be prepared for that. It's just part of the long-term game, right? That complacency is going to be odd to see how it shakes out as everything kind of evolves over time. I do think one important note, though, to keep in mind as we head into this upcoming week, the day the episode's released on Monday uh, the 20th, is the 50-day EMA, not for the reason that people think it is. You, you see all the perma bears on Twitter always say, oh, you know... We broke the 50 EMA you know, it's finally going to fall apart here, you know, and that we, you know, this is the game over, right? Finally, right here, we're going to get to see the crash that we've all like knew is going to be happening the whole time. However, I will give them this comment and this is what I'm looking for Monday. We haven't had the the S and P spy close and open the following day, like close one day, and open the following day, below the 50 EMA, since early November, last time. That dip before the election and the rip-after the election the vaccine news, was the last time that the S&P closed and opened the next day below the 50 EMA. You've had times where it's intraday gone below the 50 EMA, like during the GameStop Mania in January. You had days where it closed below the 50 EMA, like in early March during the yield stuff but then it opened the next day above the 50 EMA, right? You have another one here closing below the 50 EMA in May, but it opens above the next day. You've had days where it's open below the 50 EMA, also in the middle of May, but it didn't close that day below the 50 EMA either, right? same thing here closes at the 50 EMA in June, goes below it intraday in July, but all those times it didn't open the following day below the 50 EMA as well. We did breach the 50 EMA on a close on Friday, so it will be interesting to see if that trend breaks because that would be interesting to watch with the dynamics going on. In my opinion, at least, you know, you you look at the, the retail sales and stuff in the economy, they're pretty strong right now. And what I really think, at least in my opinion, is that the retail consumer is strong in America. I think the consumer economy in the U.S. is powerful and isn't really the primary concern for what could cause, you know, higher levels of turbulence. There's higher spending and higher savings in the U.S. Uh, you know, everyone will say, oh, well, inflation's doom and gloom. You know, I have my own opinions that things aren't really what they seem with inflation, that, like, you know, it's transitory. That doesn't mean prices will come back down for consumers, but that the pressures are going to, you know, alleviate, Right. What I do think is more important, and this is much more valid to hold trepidation and concern to, is international events, right? And I'm to the person that's asking in chat around now, Dill, welcome. What is the strat this week? I don't. This is stuff that I can't look at in such a short time frame. You know, I'm not a person that looks at investments in the market in, in a in a week time frame. I just can't. Especially when these developments take months to gather steam, or years to gather steam, right? My first episode on Evergrande, which we're about to really move into more again today, was in July, right? Two months ago. And still, that's had hardly an impact on the U.S. market, Although you could argue that it's causing some weakness uh, in the past week, right? For the most part, it's had no impact, so far. So I, I, I can't really talk to anything like that. It, it doesn't make sense for me to say, oh, what's the... F- the specific trading strategies, especially when I'm in college, like, for classes, like, during the day, right? It doesn't make sense for me to go try to find intraday strategies when I have to uh, actually be looking out uh, longer term because I'm doing work, you know, during the day, right? I hope that makes some sense. Uh, But as I was saying, you know, the international events are the things that I'm really, you know, a bit more concerned about right now. Obviously, we talked to Evergrande, but it's not just... Evergrande, that's just a single piece of, of, a, of a bigger puzzle to me, right? I think that there's, you know, much more contagion how it spreads, right? Or if it spreads, but there's signs that it is spreading. Uh, and we'll go into some of those things in a second, right? But I know I've talked to Evergrande a good amount of times on the podcast. The situation, like I said in the introduction, though, has rapidly escalated in the past week, you know? My last two week's title, Evergrande is Bankrupt, wasn't supposed to be the point where they literally couldn't pay the interest on their debt at like, as this episode's coming out. Right. What do we timeframe? Like, and that's how quickly things developed. I I do want to point out the irony that Chinese state media is trying to say that it's contained, right? That Evergrande's contained. I'll pull up this article here. This is from the global times, uh, which is China state media. They're saying the Evergrande crisis does not pose systemic risk, won't change housing regulation from experts. Right. And they're trying to, like, say, oh, the Western media outlets doom and gloom is, is like, you know, wrong, right? One, I, I don't think I need to point out the irony in that every crap, like, not crash, but, like, you know, every time, like, there's been a slew in the past of people saying, oh, this thing can't fail. That's typically, yeah, yeah, it typically doesn't get well. Social Boy saying, didn't they say this about Lehman Brothers? Yeah, literally someone said like a week before they collapsed, oh, they're in a great financial position they can't buy. You know, you saw the, the Jim, Jim Cramer buy Bear Stearns at 60, right? Like, this is a great opportunity, f- you yeah, right? It, stuff like this, like, can be quite funny to see in a hindsight, but it's like, can you really trust that, like, in the now, right? That's what matters. Our course words is asking if it's too soon to bring up COVID containment examples. I don't know if it'd be too soon, because this it, this is more like financial related, right? I, I think uh, the ability like of countries from you know South Korea to China, to uh, Italy to keep the pandemic under control aren't really related the same way to people saying, Oh, this business can't fail, right? Yeah, if that makes any sense. And Nusagi is saying in the chat that they you heard they're paying investors back with discounted properties. They are, and we'll get into that as well. Uh but, as my notes say here, the writing really is on the wall for Evergrande at this point because of stuff like the property fire sale so that Nusaki just brought up in the Twitch chat there. You know, and because, like I said, it's especially because they can't even pay the interest on their debt that's due the day this podcast comes out. It's literally today, Chinese local time, as of the time of recording. So they can't pay this debt. And the discounted property thing, it's literal fire sale, right? Not everyone's going to be made whole from that. Most people probably won't because their assets are going to be written the hell down. I, I think the, the, the important thing to ask there, if they haven't been able to sell their headquarters building, how are they going to actually be able to get their actual assets and discounted properties off their balance sheet, right? I think that's the question that needs to be asked, right? The more important question, at least one that people will be asking, is how is a company which has never reported a loss be bankrupt, just a true fact, and I don't know if any of you listening know this, but Evergrande has never reported a loss. In fact, they just reported earnings a couple weeks ago and showed a over 1 billion yuan profit, right? So how in the world could this company not be able to pay I- I- its current debt, right? That like th- That's something that's pretty curious, right? The answer is what's on their balance sheet right? And I want to give credit to the last bear standing again, who's been on this stuff since June really for continuing to make such great informational posts about all this. I got to give a lot of credit where it's due to him or, or her. I don't actually know who it is. It's an anonymous person, but they've been posting a lot of this really great information and they highlight the truth behind this. It's that they don't write down the losses on the real estate. They will buy properties at a premium, right? The company. And then when they can't make a profit, they don't actually write it off as a loss. They'll leave it as inventory on their balance sheet at the inflated price that they can't actually ever sell it as. Which means, for example, as you'll see in this photo here, this one shows their current assets and liabilities, including inventory, right? So the leverage here, they have more current assets than liabilities in this case, right? If you look at the actual leverage ratio, if you take away the inventory, it's a very different equation. Instead of them having more current assets, than current liabilities, they have three times more current assets than current liabilities, three times more. Very true soldier, but you're saying they can inflate their asset value pretty much. So they've never reported a loss because they've never written off their actual losses basically, which is why a company that's never reported a net loss is literally unable to pay the interest on their debt. The problem is that this isn't idiosyncratic to Evergrande, you know, not at all. Here's another example right here of another company. Same thing looks okay, but you take out the inventory and then they're leveraged over two and a half to one, right? And these are, this is for example, Sunek. which has seen its stock literally die. Their bonds have actually held up. Okay. But they're not nearly as well performed as they were beforehand. Soldier Boy is saying, so it's not that they might be bankrupt or defunct. Well, they are bankrupt, basically. In, in essence, they're functionally insolvent, to be exact. But you gotta keep in mind with it all that it's because they weren't writing off their actual losses. So there's the actual, you know, reason. On it. But this is not idiosyncratic at all, like I was talking about. This is another company. Same thing. Two and a half le- levered, right? On and on, right? So the actual contagion risk here you know, in terms of the leverage and, and the issues from it is not minimal. It's not idiosyncratic because other companies have similar practices, it's just the Evergrande's the largest scale on it out of the ones that everyone's keeping an eye on right now, right? There could be anything else that, we're, that no one has an eye on yet that could potentially be pretty big that we just don't see yet at all because we haven't noticed it as something to pay attention to. I mean, Gatsby, you're asking what's happening in the China market now? I think the important thing to look at in a way is, is the Hank Sang Index in a way. To that point, we're not that far off from, you know, March twenty twenty lows. Got a little bit of buffer, not a ton, but we're way, way off from the peaks that you saw up here uh, in March and February. And to be this far off to where all the gains since the, that first vaccine news came out, this isn't like some benign thing. There's actual, you know, risk being priced in, right? It's all, it's all the dynamics behind that. One of the things that have become more clear, though, since the last podcast episode, is the increasing likelihood that the CCP won't step in to bail Evergrande out. That is a policy decision, though. It's not just some random thing that they're deciding to do. Obviously, that can change, right? Like, that's not set in stone. Nobody knows what they'll actually end up doing. The odds have just tilted more towards, oh, they're not going to do this. But why wouldn't they, right? That's the question. We talked a little bit earlier about how it incentivize risky uh, and, and dangerous behavior from other businesses and cause bigger problems down the line, but why? And there's a great, great threat. This is actually, I saw this beforehand, but, uh, Michael Burry did actually retweet this threat too, uh, when he was, you know, sharing more stuff about this or wanting to, right? This is in particular a policy decision to curb leverage. As this person very poignantly points out, China, the government put in rules about leverage a while ago, but companies aren't really operating within these. The government saw leverage in its consumers and businesses as a risk to actual stability of the economy and and maintaining, you know, their outlook, right? So they enacted these things. But if they go back on what they were doing and then just bail out these companies, what's the point for anyone else to follow if they know they'll also get a bailout, right? And, you know, this is just, for example, debt to householding, like household, uh, Was it? Sorry, I'm slightly blind on the, on the chart, but you can obviously, debt per ha- for households, percentage of their assets, ripping up, right? Increasingly levered households, to tell you the truth. And that's not necessarily a good thing. They saw, you know, the writing on the wall, oh, if we let this go on, it's going to be, you know, really, really bad. And this person also points out a very interesting truth of it all, that... Because of the extended time period of just very easy, you know, gains through just leveraging and, and, and you know, working in the construction industry, large misallocation of capital. Like, for example, Evergon and other property builders buying up land and assets way above what they're actually worth. And now when they're going to be losses, they don't actually put them, they don't actually write them down as, the, you know, you, you have to do a lot of times. They just leave it on the balance sheet inventory. Even though it's worth less than it actually is because they sell it or have to do anything with it, then they can't actually say it's worth what it is anymore, right? So that's where the, the issue comes into concern, right? It, and that's really where a lot of the risk is starting to show up, obviously. Good job in noting. Being just 10% off of the 2020 loans, lows, as I said earlier, isn't just some like benign or like, you know, normal thing, right? There's there's actual more reason behind it. And importantly too, and this is the contagion discussion is that it isn't just occurring within some of these property developers as well. There's more to the game than that at this point, right? This chart, you have actual financials facing pressure now as a result of what's going on here, right? This person lists some of the banks that are facing issues right now and lists what's next. That would be starting to show stress as well so this isn't as idiosyncratic just to the sector anymore because contagion is starting to spread over what the impacts from that sector will be to other parts of the economy right important to keep in mind of right and one of the more interesting parts of this too that they also pointed out and i was talking about this very briefly earlier is how this could impact abroad like now too that you could see that now right iron ore prices for example have plummeted since this issue became more prevalent because if a lot of these property developers go bust, then demand to actually for, for iron ore to actually keep construction up will also be shuttered pretty heavily, right? So the actual need for these resource drops. So iron ore's collapsed in price, right? Down 50%. Companies that rely on that face issues like miners, not just in China, but abroad. Look at Rio Tinto. Look at this. Since August third, it's down twenty three percent. Was down over twenty five percent at one point on Friday from its high in August there, in early August, right? You go to its high from May, even worse, down thirty percent, right? X two U S Steel. You could argue actually that some of the pressures are coming over, right? U S Steel did very poorly on on Friday, for example from its peak now in later August at over $30 a share, it's down over 20%, you know? Steel makers aren't, you know, just shrugging this off. I think the interesting point that this particular thread points out is particularly the Australian companies, right? Because Australia's steel industry and mining is very related, to, and, and I, or mining is very tied to, you know, China for obvious reasons on geographic proximity. So things like BHP, as that person pointed out, have literally cliff dove, right? These ones are more relevant in, in my opinion to the conversation than just US steel, although noting the US steel trend is actually, you know, notable too. Since the end of July, you know, for example, BHP's down 30%, 31%, right? Absolutely crushed down as a result of what's going on here. So there's real ramifications outside of just the property values. This is, this is how contagion spreads, right? Because these are suppliers, or in this case for miners, the suppliers of the suppliers of the sector, right? So it's that chain reaction, as it starts to spread out, that can have real, real impacts for everything else as we keep going through this, right? And that's where it goes from, oh, this isn't that big of a deal, you know, it's idiosyncratic, oh wow, this is impacting, you know, more things than you thought it would, right? It takes time to realize this, of course, it isn't just, Oh wow, we're there already. Per, you know, done deal. Let Let's move on, right? But it's trickling through these, right? And obviously, once things really happen, it happens fast. So, for example, thirty percent down in months, fast, right? But you could argue that we haven't seen the full extent of these things yet because we're still waiting. There's a lot of uncertainty within the outcomes, and as I said last week to end the episode, uncertainty bows risk, and the market doesn't like risk. So that's where you see the markets being a bit more shaky with how things are going. You know, if I pulled the Dow really quick, Dow's been struggling for over a month now. Spy a couple weeks, but, like, you know, even though is just a baby for the most part, like 2 3% at most, you get what I'm saying in terms of, hey, this is kind of interesting to see some of the struggles here. NASDAQ's obviously been performing the strongest, but also down around 2% or so, right? So that's, at least in the U.S. market, some of the impact you could argue is tied to this, but you can't actually say all of it. And even at the end of the day, this is baby levels, pullbacks much larger than this, 10% plus happen quite frequently. We're in a very rare situation where we haven't seen in such a long time, right? So I think it's important to at least keep that note, despite how little the pullback's been, that larger pullbacks are normal and and usually happen more often, right? Just keep that in mind, to, to be completely honest. At the end of the day though, like I said, is really already here, right? I think one of the interesting components of this all is you could make the argument this that bond yields are not really pushing up because people note some of these things. Everyone's talking about, oh, inflation's holding this down. Like, how, oh, why why is inflation up so much but bonds are, are still down so much? Other pressures could keep outlook on, on yields on bonds down because people are concerned about other factors, right? I think the difference... Is big money or like big individuals that know th- that are really paying attention to certain things, noting things ahead of time, right? And the general public. Because, for example, the Evergrande situation first became notable in September of last year, at least to the more public eye, right? And then it went away until April, and then it came up very briefly in April, and then it went away again until like the past two- week and a half to two weeks in the, in, like, the public sphere, right? If you're paying keen attention, you would have noticed this a lot more starting in, in like May, June, right? And start to realize, Oh, something's up, up here. May, June's when yields start to slide. I'm not saying this is actually tied. This is just like a core. This is just a correlation, not correlation. Isn't causation, but you could say, huh, maybe this is why yields are staying so low. You can actually prove it just on that. But international concerns like this are real. I forget if I have it somewhere here exactly, but, I mentioned it last week and I'll say it again, that you don't even have to have a full-on recession in China for the impacts globally to be very, very large, right? What if you go from 6% annual growth in China to 2-3% for like two years, right? You can imagine that probably wouldn't end too well for, you know, actual global impacts. That'd, that'd be negative for, you know, global impacts on this stuff keep that in mind, because there's real truth to some of the issues that presents. If the Chinese consumer can't keep up with the output, which isn't happening right now, for example, they've actually lagged behind lately. Outputs resumed where, where, where it really was for, for the most extent, but consumers are actually tapering down. They're actually backsliding. They, they can't match the 6% right now on, on a growth rate. What impacts does that have for everywhere else? Right? And that's that, those questions alongside... Oh, ports are still partially shuttered because of the Delta variant shipping rates are stormed as a result of these things. These property developers, when, when they go down, how does it impact the suppliers of them? And the suppliers of the suppliers, as we just talked about the iron ore, because there's suppliers that aren't getting paid right now. Of, of you know, Evergrande can't pay suppliers, for example. The suppliers can't pay the miners in turn. What's the cycle? No one knows the actual outcome of that. but the uncertainty revolving around, hey, this is an uncomfortable reality that you have to face, keep an eye on it, right? And the fact that it doesn't have to be idiosyncratic to the construction related sectors either. One of the most interesting things out of the data we talked about in last week's episode is that the services sector is weaker than the manufacturing sector in China right now. So all this focuses on property development, construction and manufacturing etc. services is weaker right now at least than those. And in part that's related to consumer spending, not being able to match the prior output levels, right? Consumer spending in China right now isn't matching the six percent annual growth that it would have to you know maintain that uh like GDP run, right? So what happens in the case that Evergrande goes bust, 1.2 million units aren't finished, if you use the median price for units like that, that's a trillion dollars in finished assets gone that have deposits on them, right? How does the consumer psychologically react to that? Do they become more restrictive with their spending because they don't want to risk, you know, taking loans for certain things and stuff like that, and then having it wiped out and they're in a bad spot financially, personally? And if that psychological fact plays out, what's the impact on companies that all of a sudden are are making less income, especially if they're levered companies, right? That's stuff to be careful and realize. You know, it, the U.S. has their own problems like inflation, like uh, stock market plan is saying in the chat that chicken wings went in your town by 20% in price. My steak at some of my su- the supermarket I went to back in my hometown was up 30%, right? They lost had to corn because corn was up a lot and corn is a lot of the feed for animals. But at the same time, freight, freight and other things have, have plans that too. But in my opinion, we get around those because most of those pressures here in the U.S., are idiosyncratic and transitory and when i say idiosyncratic i mean they're widespread in their impacts right now but they're tied specifically to supply chain bottlenecks for the most part obviously when that eases up prices won't necessarily come down on us companies are going to you know raise their margins with that so honestly that it kind of feeds the argument that the best inflation hedges stocks in a way you know you've heard that before and it's not an irrelevant statement if companies can improve their margins on inflationary trends, right? Benefit to, to those companies. Shipping containers, obviously $25,000 a pop like Swole's boy saying in Chad yeah. But how do you hedge that, right? You can't hedge that with gold necessarily, right? People say gold's store value and it's not necessarily wrong. We're not gonna make an argument of two or four against that. But what's the best way to actually combat that? Oh, well there's shipping companies that benefit extremely from rates going up that much. So let's say a good that you have to buy goes up 5% in cost and this is a hypothetical good because of 5% in cost because inflation because of inflation on, on freight rates, right? Well, what if you could make 250% or 100% on a company that does the shipping, right? And gets the biggest benefit from those rates going up. Because even when the, the, the you know things cool off, they can actually ask their margin padding, right? I think Zim is a really interesting thought experiment on that because and I want to say full disclosure, I own five shares of Zim. I bought four on the 28th of July. I bought another one like around here somewhere. I have an average of, like 39 a share. But I already got, right, $10 in dividends, right, from that. So I put in, in total, like $170, I already got 10 back in dividends. They're giving back 30 to 50% of their earnings per share next year in dividends as well. And In my opinion, they're on track to make $30 per share in dividend, like EPS this year, which means that they could give $15 a share in dividends back next year, right? What does that add up to for dividends for me? 15 times five, $75 plus the 10 here, $85. Just on that, boom. That's literally almost a 50% yield, or that's like 40 to 50% yield on my investment from dividends. Not to consider the fact that that would probably offset my personal spending expenditures on you know increased like freight for cost and shipping costs on, on on the sea for some of these things right excluding the stock price appreciation which is giving me more than that those dividends would over the course of the next year right so i i think there's where you can make the argument for some of those validities but in at the end of the day those pressures for us in, in the u.s are, are tr- more short-term factors right or short run factors there's an end time frame on it but They come to an end, right? Because things will normalize. Nobody knows exactly when, but they will. It doesn't mean prices will come down for us. I think that was my first podcast episode ever. But they will normalize. When you're talking about something like China, where all of a sudden, man, these property owners go under, people lose money because they put deposits on their homes that they didn't have built yet. Spending tightens while lending simultaneously tightens because banks are losing confidence in other sectors, that's a lot different of an issue. Because in the US, sure, we're facing inflationary pressures and maybe people consider sub- like substituting some of the items that they get for cheaper versions because they don't want to pay certain amounts on some things. But we aren't tightening our spending because that. We're still spending the same amount, but just on different things. In that case, in China though, for example, That would be a tightening less spending into the economy and less lending into the economy at the same time, right? Whole different ballparks. One is manageable and normal and happens all the time in economies. The other is, wow, that's actually contraction, right? And I think it's pretty easy to tell which is the bigger potential issue. If it's all in a bubble, right? It wouldn't really matter too much to us here, but it isn't just in a bubble there's global impacts in such an interconnected global economy. You know, if China slows down their growth substantially for a couple of years, that impacts us big time here, no matter what you're invested in, unless you're invested in like 10 year treasuries and then you're getting 1% a year, like guaranteed. Right? So good on you for that. Proud of you for it, it means a lot. But my point stands, the interconnectedness connectedness of the global economy means risk somewhere else become a risk where we are as well and that's why they're worth monitoring even if we don't know the actual outcome right they're all real things that are worth watching wouldn't you agree because I, I think they I think there's something to agree on you can disagree on a lot of things but at the end of the day these things are still worth watching and that's why I like to talk about them so that's really gonna wrap it up here for this episode of Theta Talk, episode 8 I think we're gonna call it contagion or something like that <laughs> you know but I want to thank you all for coming out, taking a listen, hearing what I have to say. Thank you for everyone that actually chipped in in the chat today and the live stream. It's been a pretty lively chat for all this. Uh, one of the best we've had to date, honestly. So thank you so much for everyone being here live to actually discuss these things. And everyone that's listening uh, on the actual post recording on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you are. Thank you for doing it. I, I appreciate it a lot. Feel free to drop a follow. It helps me out. Uh, really kind of keeps you going with these things. Eventually, I'll pay off my student loans one day down the line. Don't know when, but it'll happen someday. I'll get a job one day. I hope you know how it is. But uh, honestly, thank you so much for the honestly uh, the, uh, the views and growth recently on it because I was really enjoying just doing this as, as a kind of thought experiment thing to just relax and do on my stream. But the past week or so really kind of exploded things off. At the end of the day, it's still very small. You know, it's like less than a thousand views. But the fact that people are actually taking the time to listen to this stuff, like, means a lot to me, honestly. So thank you for taking the time of your day to do this. I hope you have a great week. And I'll be back next Sunday evening to record another episode of Theta Talk, my live chat. So if you want to be a part of this live, go to twitch.tv slash Usually Sunday evenings, we try to get this done. And see what's going on. It'll probably be a different topic. I have some interesting life things that I'll probably bring to it at that point. But that's going to wrap it up here. Have a great week.